Evidence and Answers. Atheists argue that the existence of evil poses a serious flaw to the belief in an all-powerful and loving creator. However, this argument actually reveals atheism's most fatal self-contradiction. You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zucrin. Pat is the director of the Pacific Apologetic Center, a subsidiary ministry of the Bible Institute of Hawaii. Pat is a popular teacher, speaker, and author in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Without delay, here is Pat as he concludes his interview with Dr. Norman Geisler and discusses his latest book, Atheism's Fatal Flaw. Now, atheists argue that, well, if God exists, then why does he allow such great evil to take place? I mean, he, he doesn't have to intervene in every wrong decision, but just in the big ones, you know, such as the Holocaust or the genocide in Sudan and Cambodia. Why doesn't he just intervene on these big disasters here? And many state it would be immoral for anyone to stand and watch and not help a woman being raped on the street. But God seems to stand by and watch the cruel treatment and death of millions. How do we answer well, that? They're assuming, number one, that God's not going to do anything about it. But in the Christian view, God is going to do something about it. There's a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. And there's a judgment day uh, that's coming. And all evil is going to be judged and all good's going to be re rewarded. So they're assuming that the story is over. It's kind of like the argument, you know, if God were all-powerful, he could destroy evil. If you're all good, he would destroy evil, but evil is not destroyed, therefore there is no such God. Well, what he forgets is in the minor premise is one word, yet. Evil is not yet destroyed. It doesn't mean it's never going to be. It's like stopping me in the middle of a sentence and saying, that doesn't make any sense. Well, let me finish the sentence, you know. God hasn't finished with his sentence yet. And when he does finish, it's going to make sense. And so sometimes, you know, God, in allowing us to exercise our freedom, sometimes must allow us to experience the sometimes horrific consequences of the bad decisions we make against his will and his law. If he didn't, we would never learn from them. You know, if, if you could play footloose and fancy free at the moral law, and there wouldn't be any consequences, then you would never learn from disobeying the moral law. You know, if every time a murderer put a noose around somebody's neck to kill them, the noose turned to a noodle, then he would never learn from his evil actions. Every time he went to stab somebody, he could turn the knife into jello. Every time God intervened, he'd be intervening to stop the very consequences of those actions, which have within them the possibility of learning something from the bad action. So that would not be a, a moral world, uh, and the atheist wouldn't like to live in that world, and he would complain that he didn't have freedom. He would say, well, I had freedom only when God wanted me to have freedom, but if I did anything against his will or against him, then he didn't allow me to be free. Well, how free am I if I say to my son, you know, you're free to do anything I tell you to do, and when you grow up and become an adult, you're still free to do anything I tell you to do, and if you, don't, if you do anything I didn't tell you to do, then I'm going to kill you. Well, that wouldn't be freedom, because that would be intervening to determine the consequences of actions which somebody didn't have because you didn't allow them to have it. 
Now, some atheists argue, well, you know, things like the Holocaust, the death of six million, and the you know death of millions of others in genocides doesn't seem to have a particular reason or purpose. You know, how would you answer that? Well, first of all, the assumption of the question is wrong. The assumption is uh, that every specific action has to have a good purpose for there to be a good purpose. I answer it by saying, first of all, just because you don't know the purpose doesn't mean there is no purpose. Just because I don't know why life grows on thermal vents in the depth of the sea doesn't mean that someday some scientists won't discover it. You know, one day, once they didn't know how a bumblebee could fly, and they found out there's a power pack on it. Once there were 180 vestigial organs, leftover organs from the evolutionary days, as the evolutionists say in Darwin's day. Now there, there are only half a dozen of them, and we know purposes for those. So just because we don't know a purpose for evil doesn't mean there isn't a purpose for evil. And secondly, all evil doesn't have to have a direct good purpose. It can be a byproduct of a good process. For example, the blacksmith is in his shop and he's hitting his hammer and a spark flies. He's making a plow for a farmer to plow his field and feed his children with, which is a good purpose. But the spark flies from the anvil, hits the sawdust, and burns his little uh, place of employment down. So that was a byproduct of a good process. The process was good, but some good processes have bad byproducts. That's what's called gratuitous evil. The byproduct itself is not good. But the process which allowed that byproduct to occur was a good process. And we don't have to explain why every blacksmith shop uh, burns down. We just have to explain the good purpose for which that was made possible. Yeah, that's well said. Well, what is the atheist's answer to evil? You know, a world without God, what is their answer? Is it, their answer to evil is God should intervene and stop it all or stop some of it. And in the book we go into, there are ten different things that they say that God should do. And if he intervened and did those things, he would be destroying their freedom. That's the whole point of the book. The whole point of the subtitle is exposing conflicting beliefs. They have conflicting beliefs because they, on the one hand, believe that there's evil in this world. And on the other hand, they believe that God could destroy that evil. But at the same time, they believe that humans are free. They enjoy their freedom. They want their freedom. They want the world to be free. But you can't have it both ways. You can't have a world that's free and a world where there's no evil. Because if you have freedom, you're going to have the possibility for evil. Now, one of the points you point out in your book is that atheists argue that faith in God is dangerous. And one of the reasons that it promotes ignorance. I mean, it stops the quest for knowledge because we simply say, well, God did it. Is that a true premise here, that faith in God promotes ignorance? No, faith in God actually promotes knowledge. You know, if you have faith in something, you're going to pursue it. The scientist has faith in science, they point out there, and the faith in science prompts him to continue to study, even if he doesn't get an answer, if he doesn't know why a bumblebee flies or why there's life on thermal vents in the depths of the sea. He's going to study more. He's going to get knowledge as a result 
of that faith. So even the atheist doesn't believe that premise. Well, here's the second point that they state, that faith in God is dangerous because it promotes arrogance. His belief that, yeah, we've got the corner on truth and morality, and we condescendingly look down on others or condemn others who don't agree with us. So faith is in God is dangerous because it promotes arrogance. Is, is that a true premise? Then the atheist uh, himself is promoting arrogance because that's exactly what happens. And the extreme of that view is called scientism, where you think he's got the answer to all questions, and there is no question that science can't answer. So his faith in science leads him to the arrogance to think that the only place you're going to get answers is from a scientist and from the scientific method. So he, of all people, shouldn't be complaining about that because he's exercising the same thing himself. And I guess the third point they present is that faith in God is dangerous because it can lead to fanaticism. How do we answer that one? <laughs> the abuse doesn't bar use is the principle that answers that. Just because it can be misused doesn't mean it's bad. Atomic power can be abused. It doesn't mean it's bad. You know, We'd have to get rid of every invention, including the automobile, on that basis. Look how the automobile has been abused. Look at all the accidents that are happening. That's what's going to happen in a free world, where you have that kind of power. Say nothing of the, you know, the jet engine, or say nothing of, of a gun, or what have you. Everything can that's available to free creatures can be used for evil, but it also can be used for good. And when God created the free world, that meant he created creatures who could love him and creatures who could hate him. People who could use various things to love him and could use various things to hate him. That's the very nature of a free world. You know, atheists say that they have evidence and reason, whereas Christians practice faith or blind kind of faith. But one of the things you point out in your book is that atheists also practice faith in several things, don't they? Yes, they do. In fact, science is based on faith. I'll never forget the brutal honesty of an atheist in northeastern United States from one of the Ivy League schools. I was having an informal dinner debate with him, and I asked him if he believed in God, and he said no. I said, well, he was a physicist, so I said, well, do you believe in the second law of thermodynamics, the amount of usable energy? in the universe is decreasing in the closed isolated system. He said, yeah, I believe that. I said, well, that leads to, to God, because if you follow that through, then there must have been a beginning to the universe. He said, well, every system has its own exception. That's my exception. So I said, well, I'll try another argument with him. I said, I said do you, if, if you're a materialist, you believe everything is made out of matter, right? Even mind is made out of Matter has some material things. It's really brains and electrons and electricity. I said, if you believe in materialism, then uh, is the theory of materialism made out of matter? In other words, is the, is the theory that we call materialism made out of molecules and atoms and protons and electrons and neutrons? Uh, how do you explain that? How do you explain your theory of materialism? And he said, it's magic. Wow. And I was stunned by it. And so I asked him one more question. I said, what's your basis for saying that uh, the theory of materialism is magic? He said, it's faith. 
So faith and magic was his basis for materialism. Now that's the extreme example, but uh, just to put it in more understandable terms, he believes there's a universe out there. He believes the universe is operating regularly. He believes that his mind is able to discover truth. I mean, there's three presuppositions that he can't prove that every scientist uh, believes in. So you can't avoid having faith in something that is not provable. A lot of atheists and, well, I guess the Western mindset, we put a lot on science, proving something. But what are the limits of science? You know, there's a book by that title. It was written back, I think, around the 1930s, Jay and Sullivan, The Limitations of Science. And this is what he was pointing to. The scientific method is a limited method because it's capable of dealing only with the universe insofar as it's mathematizable or quantifiable or the normal things that we use to describe the universe. But there are other things in the universe besides that. Love can't be put in the test tube. The interpersonal relationships can't be put in a test tube. They don't have any scientific explanation for self-consciousness. What's consciousness and where did it, did it come from? So their method is limited. Etienne Gilson, in his book, The Unity of Philosophical Experience, talks about the category mistakes that people make by assuming that the scientific method, which works in a certain area, a certain you know, quantifiable, mathematizable uh, area, that that can be used in ethics or in metaphysics or in philosophy. It's a category mistake. It's not suited for that. So you shouldn't expect to be able to use it. Yes, and even the data we collect from science, we have to come to some kind of conclusion about it. And often the conclusion has metaphysical implications, don't they? Yeah, and ethical implications, too. Uh, you can always raise the question, you know, should we do it, should, like cloning? Even if we can, should we do it? Just because we can do it doesn't mean we ought to do it. I'm talking about human cloning, for example. Just because we can use embryonic tissue to, uh, for health reasons to save lives doesn't mean we ought to do it. Is does not determine ought, and a can does not determine should. Now, Dr. Geisler, the, you know, one of the arguments against evil is based on a universal moral law code. And many atheists state that we do not need God to be morally good. How do you answer that particular argument there? You don't need to believe in God to be good, but there has to be a God in order for you to be good, because there has to be some moral law by which you're judging your actions, but a moral law implies a moral lawgiver. So you can believe there is no God and get along fine, but there has to be a God before you can get along fine, because they have to have a basis for your actions before you can call them good. How do you know they're good? Let's have a moral law on it. So it leads you right back to God. You have to have a ground for believing in God, and that ground is going to involve some sort of Judeo-Christian principle. Now, some atheists will respond and say, no, this moral ethical system comes from our basic instinct for survival and the propagation of species. Does that provide an adequate answer? It does not, because if the moral law were nothing 
but herd instinct. And what happens when you see a burning building? Well, your instinct tells you not to go into it. But if somebody told you, if your wife told you she just left your baby in there, then your moral obligation overcomes the herd instinct. And so if everything were just a matter of instinct, you would never act against instinct. You would never act contrary to it or to bolster it, as we often do. So basically, it's almost impossible to explain a universal moral law without a moral lawgiver, without a good and moral God who instills that law within us. Every prescription has a prescriber. And if you went to a pharmacist and say, would you fill this prescription? He said, who prescribed it? And you said, nobody, it's just a prescription. He would laugh at you. He'd think you're out of your mind. Because every prescription has a prescriber, and every moral law has a moral lawgiver. So when you've presented that argument to some of the top atheists in the world, how have they responded to your particular argument here? Well, one of them, this was in New Zealand, I think it was, or Australia, said, how do you explain these moral oughts that you, you ought to be rational or you ought to respect other people's freedom or you ought to be tolerant? They have a bunch of oughts that even they believe in. How do you explain these prescriptions without a prescriber? His answer was, well, it's just there. Either you see it or you don't see it. Well, yeah, that's usually the response that I get. It's just there or it just is. And Yeah, that's like Bertrand Russell's answer to Father Copleston on the universe. Where did the universe come from? Well, it's just there. Well, uh, who put it there? You know, it didn't have a beginning. I mean, it had, it had a beginning. If it had a beginning, then how did it get there? If it, nothing comes from nothing, nothing ever could. It's a, it's a violation of the principle of causality, and it's self-defeating to deny the principle of causality. Right, and so that's really the premise and thesis of your book, is to show the contradiction or self-defeating arguments that the atheists have when it comes to their argument against the existence of God because of evil. That's pretty much your premise there, isn't it? Yeah, the premise is but what's unique about the uh, book is that the main inconsistency that we're pointing out, the subtitle exposing conflicting beliefs, is that they believe that if there were a good God, he should intervene in the world. But they also believe that he shouldn't intervene and tamper with their freedom. You can't have it both ways. You can't have, as one of your premises, that God has the ability to intervene in the, the world and stop evil, and yet, if he violated my freedom, that would be wrong. Because if he's going to solve the problem of evil, there are only three ways he can do it, A, B, and C. And uh, he's going to have to use uh, one of those, and all of them uh, involve a limitation or destruction of human free will, uh, which they don't want to happen and which they would complain to high heaven if it did happen. There's several good lines in the book where that's try where we're pointing that out and even on the, the last page of the book. It says, after all, there's already something existing that's endowed with less freedom and bothered by less hard moral training than humanity, namely animals. If you want a world where nobody can do these evil things, 
than make a world out of uh, minerals and animals or puppets. But if you want a, a free world where people are free to think atheist thoughts, where they're free to do what they want to do ethically and morally, which atheist uh, cherishes, then don't give me this thing that God could intervene and uh, make a better world. Of course he could intervene and make it a different world. But if he did, you wouldn't have the freedoms that you cherish. Now, Dr. Geisler, a lot. Before you write a book, your arguments here are often battle-tested here in real situations here. How effective has your arguments that you present in this book been in real-life situations and discussions? Well, I'll give you some examples. I debated the Harvard PhD atheist at University of Miami once on uh, the existence of God. And, uh, after the debate, he demanded that no outsiders be allowed to come in, only students there. And the uh, students voted two to one in favor of theism over atheism. Debated at the University of Calgary on humanism versus Christianity. They voted three to one in favor of Christianity. The campus newspaper said the next day atheist fails to convert campus Christians. That was a headline. Newspaper, one atheist invited me over to his house after and wanted to know more and ask more questions and got a copy of my, one of my books out that he had read and, and marked well. And another atheist said in the middle of the debate when we took a break, he said, you really got me on some of those points there. If they're open-minded, it has an effect. If they're not open-minded, you can lead a horse to the water, but you can't make him drink. Right, and this is often a very kind and gentle way, instead of always being on defense, to go on the offense in a good and gentle way and pointing out the contradictions even from their own point of view and their own authors. Yeah, that's right. The value of this little book, and it's only 150 pages, it is just loaded with uh, quotes from uh, famous atheists. One of my favorite ones, before we wind this up here, one of my favorite ones comes from the, the atheist Nagel, because he has a, a quote that says here on page 153 of the book, when asked why he didn't believe in God, he said, I don't want there to be... A God. Not only do I not believe in God, but I don't want there to be a God. I, I don't want there to be a world like that. Well, that's getting pretty close to the real problem, isn't it? If you don't want it to occur. He, uh, Thomas Nagel said, then I quote, I want atheism to be true and am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I hope that I'm right. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. Well, that pretty well uh, says the whole thing. That's great. Well, the book is The Atheist Fatal Flaw, a brand new book from Dr. Norman Geisler. Dr. Geisler, you also have a website where people can get more information. Tell us about that website. The new website I want everyone to look at is called DefendingInerrancy.com. It's got, just take a look at it. It's an amazing website. We've got Billy Graham, Franklin Graham, Ravi Zacharias, a who's who of people that are committed to 
the belief that the Bible is the inerrant word of God. They've all made statements about it, and we answer questions in there and arguments against Christianity. Defendinginerrancy.com. Great. Well, this has been our interview with Dr. Norman Geisler, one of the deans of apologetics of our generation, founder and president emeritus of Southern Evangelical Seminary. His new book, The Atheist Fatal Flaw, but not only that book, you've got his website and over 90 books that he has written. I've got a whole stack of them in my library there. I'm referring to them all the time. And so it's a valuable resource, and we've been privileged to have Dr. Geisler with us today. So, Dr. Geisler, thanks for being on the show. Thank you. Great to be with you. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. This concludes Pat's interview with leading apologist, Dr. Norman Geisler. Evidence and Answers is a ministry of the Pacific Apologetics Center, a subsidiary of the Bible Institute of Hawaii. Evidence and Answers relies on the generous donations from you, our listeners. If you would like to team with us, please start with prayer. And then to donate, log on to our website at evidenceandanswers.org. Evidence and Answers is brought to you by our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions for more than 20 years. To learn more, visit their website at hcmlp.com. Join us here next week or on the web for more evidence and answers.